This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. From Christianity Today, I'm Sandra McCracken, and this is The Slow Work. We are all creatives at heart, no matter what career or calling we find ourselves in. Inspiration can happen in a second, but the work of creativity only happens when we're patient enough to stay with it. It takes grit to see it through. I love hearing what this looks like for musicians, poets, painters, writers, and advocates. So I've been talking to them, and I want to invite you to listen in. As you do, I hope that your faith story gets tangled up in your work story and that your creative mind would be renewed by hope and possibility. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this is Azure, producer of The Slow Work. Welcome back. We're so grateful to have you listening in. If you've enjoyed these conversations, it would help us if you'd take the time to leave a review or share an episode you like with a friend. On today's show, Sandra talks with musicians JJ and Dave Heller. This dynamic duo worked together, co-writing, recording, and releasing her songs independently. After 20 years making music full-time, JJ has 14 full-length albums, two Christmas EPs, and dozens of singles to her name. In this interview, you'll hear the Hellers talk about the dynamics of being married and working together, finding balance with their family life, defining their audience, and the unique experience they've had operating outside of the mainstream music industry. JJ and Dave Heller, thank you so much for coming and just having a conversation this morning. I know we have connected in a lot of different forms with songwriting and The Faithful Project. And I was just thinking about how I'm always taking notes from you all about what you're making, about your creative process. And I'm really inspired by the work that you're doing and excited to hear a little bit more about the process. So thanks for jumping in with me. Yeah, thank you. How long have you been in Nashville, if you think about like the big, the big arc of your time yeah. here? Is it, it's like a total of 13 years now? Yeah, it's, it's approaching 13, yeah. I think. We kind of had a stint before kids where we were trying to kind of expand out to this side of the country. We originally lived in Arizona. And when we moved to Nashville the first time, what it mostly did was increase demand for JJ's live music in the Southwest and Northwest. And so we were constantly flying mm. West. And then when mm. kids came along, that was starting to become more complicated for us. And yeah. shortly after we moved back to Arizona to be closer to where the gigs were, JJ's music kind of miraculously ended up on Christian radio. And all of a sudden we were having conversations with record labels and industry people that we used to live down the street from. And now we were on the other side of the country. And that eventually led to more recording in Nashville, but touring uh, on buses out of Nashville. And so we found ourselves mm -hmm. leaving the kids in Arizona and flying back to Tennessee to hop on a tour bus. And that just started to become unsustainable and JJ eventually mm -hmm. was just like either we quit 
or we move to Tennessee. Yeah. I said, my heart is breaking. This is not sustainable. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, that's a long commute. Yeah, Yeah. it it was rough because for some tours, we would bring the girls. We have two daughters. um, We would bring them with us. But if they came with us, we'd also bring a nanny. So that's a lot of bunks to take Mm. up on a tour bus. So we Mm -hmm. did a tour where there weren't enough bunks available. And so we needed to leave the girls back home in Phoenix. And so the schedule would go something like Dave and I would fly to Nashville on a Wednesday, um, leave in the morning, get in, get on the bus at midnight, uh, do the run of shows. The bus would come back to Nashville Monday morning. Everybody would get off and go home and we would have to find a ride to the airport. We'd wait at the airport for our Mm -hmm. flight, fly home and get home in time to put the girls to bed on Monday night and then Mm -hmm. spend all day Tuesday with them. And then sometimes we'd leave again on Wednesday or leave again on Thursday. And I was looking at the calendar and knowing that there were six weeks in a row of this schedule. And, mm-hmm. and that's when I said, I never want to do this again. And yeah. so, yeah, the options were either we stop touring or we move back to Nashville. So we did that uh, almost nine years ago. In 2014, we moved back. And you finished that tour. Like you ended up doing all six weeks of that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Went house shopping by the end of it and, <laughs> and found our house. Yeah. It was a really crazy, crazy season. That is hard to imagine. And and I and yet I do understand it. There's something familiar about it because anytime anytime you're mixing these elements of like children and creative work and flight schedules and buses and other people, even on the best case scenario, when everything goes as planned, it's a tremendous amount of sacrifice and effort to make that happen and to find yourself at the front end of a long stretch of that and then realizing, oh, this is a big signpost that something needs to change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. You know, and I I think that's a very relatable thing where you kind of hit a point where you can see something that maybe on paper looked possible. And then when you get into it, it's just not it. It's not a human experience you want to keep doing. Yeah. yeah. And I think especially like my girls were really small at the time, like kind of toddlers. It was before school age. And on bus tours, as you know, there's so much downtime. So you know, I'm away Mm. from home and I'm just kind of twiddling my thumbs. And it it Mm. was, I just had this really unsettled feeling of I'm away from my kids and I'm not even doing anything. Most of the day you maybe do sound check at three o'clock, get a a ride to the hotel, shower and change and get ready. And then you have to be back for the show. You eat dinner and then you do the show. And that's like the extent of your commitments. But like the whole morning, I wasn't doing anything and I just missed my kids so much. It's it's funny though, mm-hmm. with all the nothing that you do on the road, there's so much waiting mm-hmm. that's happening. I mean, you're kind of yeah. at the disposal of whoever's giving you a ride or the promoter who has other plans for you, or you have to go to a radio station or whatever the thing happens to be. But you know, mm-hmm. it's you're coordinating. 12 other people's lives along with you. And so Mm -hmm. you have to be really flexible, but it's hard to balance that dynamic with a family. Um, Yeah. Especially when the two of us as their parents 
are gone together. Like Dave always plays guitar when we perform, which is so great in so many ways. Like I love that we have all of these shared experiences. Mm -hmm. It just gets complicated when kids are involved. Yeah. There's a weariness to those rhythms of hurry up and wait. I mean, this is one of the things that I think is very unique about you is that you all have managed to crack the code of what it is to make music and create community around music that is not attached to touring. Would you say that that's been like you've made a successful transition from touring life as musicians to staying home and working really hard to put music out and to create community around it. Yeah. So many of our big decisions in terms of how we approach music and making a career has just been these like kind of small incremental and sometimes accidental choices. (laughs) Like we just Mm -hmm. kind of stumbled into things Mm -hmm. over and over, but because we've never been signed to a label, we can just make these choices and take these risks and see Mm -hmm. what happens. And uh, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But as 2020 was approaching, we decided we're just going to play 10 shows in 2020 and kind of like taper Mm -hmm. off because at the time I just wasn't really enjoying performing and our girls Every time we would leave to play a show, they would get sad, which had never really happened before. They would ask us not to go and cry sometimes. And so that was just like tearing out my heart. And Mm. so we had a conversation about, does it have to be this way? I mean, because we had been playing music together full time for a decade by that point. And our mode of operation was always like, push as hard as you can. We got to make this work, you know, say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. And once we took a step back, we realized that there was some margin, like we didn't have to tour as much as we had been touring. And so that's when we decided, let's just do 10 shows. And then we only ended up playing one show because in March, you know, the world (laughs) shut down. But for us, it, it wasn't as huge of a transition as it was for a lot of our musician friends mm-hmm. who whose income like really relied on touring and bringing in that revenue. Throughout JJ's career, what we've tried to do on a regular basis is just kind of ask ourselves, how are we doing? And like when we first started 20 years ago, the whole idea was let's try this for a year and if it's not successful, then we'll go get jobs, you know? And it's it was the kind of thing that like yeah. every year would kind of come around and we'd go like, are we doing okay? Are things growing? Could we do this for another year? Mm-hmm. Like the season that JJ's talking about was like kind of having a, a conversation about the road. But prior to that, JJ was not really enjoying the road and we were having conversations about how do we make the road a more pleasant place? And she kind of came up with the idea that we don't want to rush to an early flight because we're just going to be exhausted when we get home for our kids. So we're going to fly just a little bit later in the day. And like when we're in the airport, I'm getting a latte because I want my time while we're traveling to be pleasant. and. When we're done with the show, we're going to eat good food. So one of the things that we started to notice 
as the years went by was that even after shows, people would come up and talk to JJ and they would say, your recordings were with me in these really difficult life circumstances. And it was like, we just played a concert. Like you're not talking about the concert, you're talking about our recordings. Maybe we should pay attention to that. Uh, well, we also found ourselves with like, I, I should tell this story. When JJ's music was on the radio, we were manufacturing thousands and thousands of CDs and we had a distributor and the distributor <laughs> had a warehouse and they were like, print as many as you want, keep them at our warehouse and we will get them to the bookstores and stuff. Well, and as you know, the more that you print, the cheaper they are per unit. And so we just right. thought like people are going to be buying CDs forever. Might as well just make thousands and thousands of What could of possibly <laughs> happen? So yeah, somewhere around 2016, the distributor gives us a call. We're living in Nashville by this time. And they're like, hey, can you come pick up your extra inventory? Like sales are slowing down. And I was like, how much do you guys have in the warehouse? And they were like 60,000 CDs. And I was like, can I come see what 60,000 CDs looks like? Oh um, my gosh. So I, yeah, I drove over and it turns out 60,000 CDs looks like about six pallets of albums. Oh, wow. Just like cardboard that boxes full of, of CDs. Yeah. And so we found ourselves with a garage full of pallets of albums. And we were like, we want to make new music, but we don't want to make any more of these, right? Um, Again, this is like the, a very big signpost for you. Like, okay, exactly. this thing we're, we thought <laughs> very big symbol of what you were doing and aiming toward. And then all of a sudden you're like, I think we need to pivot. Yeah, time to yeah. reevaluate. Yeah, like every time we would walk into the garage. It was like, this is not working. <laughs> we need to do something else. Yeah. We pivoted around that time into making a song every month that we just put out digitally. It was kind of an experiment. Over the next couple of years, it became kind of a self-sustaining thing where the digital catalog was able to pay for the next month's recording. And we just turned it into more of a discipline and we haven't stopped since then. And that was before COVID. So that would yes. have been a few Several years before years. that. Yeah, yeah. It was like three okay. years before. You were kind of trying it in tandem. So you were still doing some touring, but yeah. you started trying this like regularly putting music out thing as the streaming platforms were all growing in right. popularity. Yeah. I mean, because at the time Spotify was the bad guy. It was like, we don't right. want to be paid fractions of a penny. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, it was really scary. Over time, we started to treat the recording release schedule kind of like a podcast where it was just yeah. like people yeah. can anticipate the first Friday of the month, JJ Heller's putting out another recording and they can come and find yeah. it. It's a very atypical way of approaching music because the industry basically says work for two years crafting the most perfect collection of 10 or 12 songs mm -hmm. so that you can find the perfect one that can be the hit and you can work that hit to radio and base an entire tour off of that collection of songs with the hit being that anchor jj has not had hits you know? <laughs> but we have meaningful songs 
And so we wanted to keep making meaningful material that over time could find its way into listeners' lives. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Do you think it has been an advantage that you were not signed to a record deal early on? Or has it been an advantage being an independent during the time when everything in the whole industry was also changing? I think being independent has suited us very well. I don't think it would work for everybody. I just happen to be married to Dave Heller, who is like really good at (laughs) business and managing and he keeps everything organized. Uh, And I'm bad at all of that stuff. So I sing and help write the songs and then he does everything else basically. Um, I love that. So that's, this is so unique also in your work and in your relationship. I mean, you're married and your music partners, your business partners, are is is this something that happens organically? Do you sit at the breakfast table and dream up like a new album project or do you set aside regular meeting times? Like what does collaboration <laughs> look like over the years and has it changed over after having kids or you've been doing this for a while? Yeah, I think it definitely has changed. At the beginning of our relationship, I was the songwriter and I would write a song from start to finish, bring it to Dave. And, you know, I would kind of like hack my way through on the guitar and I would play it for him and then he would critique it and then like tweak a few things and I would get my feelings hurt and then (laughs) we'd have an argument. Mm -hmm. And, And over the years, though, we've figured out how to collaborate it's kind of rare now for me to work on a song by myself. Normally we sit down together often with a third songwriter that we bring into the mix. If I do happen to work on a song on my own, before I play it for him, I take a minute to kind of assess within myself, am I ready for critique at this moment or Mm. 
do I just want to play it for him? And then I have to communicate that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I just need to say, I'm going to play this for you. And I just want you to listen and tell me what you (laughs) like about it. And then we can work on it later. Um, That's so smart. (laughs) And I know that like, I'm closer to it. And like, I'm still in that moment and it's too raw to open myself up for criticism. And sometimes I'm just like, whatever, tell me what you think about this. And often it's so much easier to do that the next day. And Dave has learned how to lead with a compliment. And this is something we've learned over time as well, like just in our marriage and through like Enneagram work, the way that Mm -hmm. Dave shows love is by trying to make things better and by like sharing information. That took a long time for me to understand. I just received it as criticism and I'm such a people pleaser and I work really hard to figure out what do they want and then I give them that thing and Mm -hmm. and so that was definitely a point of contention especially early on but we've grown a lot we walk together really regularly like almost daily after dinner we call it a lake lap we go out our front door (laughs) and it's like about a mile to like walk around the water and like come back home when we're Mm -hmm. on those walks we're just processing life or relationships Mm -hmm. or songwriting ideas and that kind of thing. Often in the middle of a conversation going like, that's a pretty good song lyric, write that down. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll just be on a walk and go, you know, it'd be really cool is if we put together a collection of all of our favorite songs that are just joyful, songs we didn't write. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it just becomes a reality because we're our own boss we get to sort of pay attention yeah. to those ideas that we appreciate and uh, we can act on them if we feel like it's a good idea. There's so much to that image. And I think it's one that makes me think about when you're walking with somebody that you have to pace together. You have to kind of walk at the same speed mm-hmm. if you want to have a conversation and you may have like a natural gait when you're walking and someone else might have a different one. I mean, we talk about that a lot in the old hymns, you know, like Walk With Me, Lord, like the spirituals. Some of those songs talk about that. And that's such a a visual of what it is to be in friendship and then out of friendship that you're out under the sky and you, you have other elements. You have sights and sounds and everything that changes how you see the world. It kind of opens it up a lot more, it sounds like, from just being in the house, you know, pen to paper and doing the the daily work that it is. That whole pacing thing, something that we've had to work through is Dave is so much more ambitious than I am. Mm-hmm. Like he just wants to be prolific and get things done and keep like growing the business bigger and bigger. Whereas I am so content to like record songs, be home with the girls and cook dinner. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> want to be super famous. I want to be famous enough to earn a living making music and anonymous enough to not be recognized everywhere I go. (laughs) So it's perfect. I'm so happy with like, this this is it. Like I don't, I don't live in I know. I kind of don't want (laughs) I I don't want another big break. Like, I don't want to go on Oprah or whatever. Like, that's terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. I just want to 
I just want to walk my kids to school in the morning, <laughs> bake cupcakes. This is interesting. <laughs> this this idea of ambition, some of it is how I had a conversation yesterday with somebody who does like in, in the publishing side of, of music and writing. And we were talking about like ambition can be defined a lot of different ways. And in one sense, we attach our ambition to the things that we love most and how we're gifted. So there is something of ambition as a mother because good food for your children and rhythms and taking care of them and playing with them, it actually mm -hmm. will change their whole lives. It'll change their whole world. Mm -hmm. And then that has a ripple effect. How would you define the word ambition? Mm -hmm. And what do we apply mm -hmm. it to? And what does God want to do with that? Because the Puritans would say, like, we don't have a certain kind of ambition, like a selfish ambition, you know, like in an old tradition of Christian thought. But then isn't it in somewhere in one of Paul's letters that, that Jesus is talking about, like, ambition? And he was ambitious for us on our behalf. Anyway, I'm just kind of musing on that because I love hearing you yeah. <laughs> describe ambition. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, we've— We've spent some time just sort of processing the change that we have made in terms of mindset as we approach JJ's career. And I think especially mm. when an artist is younger, they find a thing that they can do that's impressive and they want to kind of turn that thing on so that they can show it off. Yeah. And so a lot of the time the question that an artist is asking early in their career is, are you impressed? Am I impressive? Mm. And right. the shift that I think has really taken place over the course of JJ's career is recognizing who the audience is. JJ is singing to women who are approximately 25 to 45 years old. They're in the middle of <laughs> starting a family or kind of taking care of a family as their kids are growing and leaving the house. The question is no longer, are you impressed? But it's more, how can we serve that audience as well as we possibly can? And I think the role of singer-songwriter is essentially to give vocabulary to people who don't have the time to process life the way that we have time to process it. What is this audience going through when a graduation is taking place, or when a miscarriage happens, or when a toddler is taking their first steps, and how do we wrap words around that so that it's serving that person well? When we succeed in wrapping words around those experiences, the audience listens and they want to hear more from JJ. So that's what sustains the career now is being ambitious in terms of service. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, 
our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. That's really a profound thought, and I'm going to continue thinking about that even after (laughs) this conversation. Each of us kind of has a question to answer around that. Where do we aim our energy and our time and shifting from, am I impressive, like asking that question, to how do I take and receive the gifts that I've been given? Because we've all been given gifts to be stewarded Mm. in who we are and what we make. You're reaching your listeners in mostly digital platforms now. Are there things that you've learned about how to to lead a community that is digital or that is virtually connected in healthy ways? I'm curious, what are the things you've learned that are like, okay, these are the markers of a healthy way of relating to an audience on a social media platform or through email or something else? I think So much of it is trial and error. What I have landed on, I feel like my presence on social media is just to be a cheerleader and to Mm -hmm. make as many posts as I can just telling people that they're doing a good job, reminding people of their humanity and Mm -hmm. of the kindness and generosity that lives within them. Also feeling safe because you can't see the goodness in others if you're afraid, if you are Mm -hmm. in a place of fear. And and it's only when you feel taken care of and held that you can start being curious about the things Mm -hmm. around you. And so I feel like my role has really taken on this kind of like motherly, nurturing caring presence. Yeah, I think it took a long time for us to try to really wrap words around JJ's music because what people typically ask is what genre do you occupy? And what we have come to tell people is like, you know how inside everybody there's a little kid and that kid can be scared? Like we create material for that kid and we tell them everything's going to be okay that Mm -hmm. goes beyond genre it can Mm -hmm. exist in a christian format it can exist in country it can exist as a lullaby and so we kind of embrace that approach even if it doesn't necessarily fit squarely into a particular category There's sincerity in the voice that you all are putting forward, especially as a singer, JJ. There's sincerity and there's a lot of subtlety to it. You're also very intentional. And I feel like 
It's both how you sing with clear diction. Like I can hear the words and the words matter with what you're saying. <laughs> and it also does oh, tap into that. You know, I, I don't know. It's, <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. And I think that's kind of a lost art. You bounce in a lot of different spaces in terms of genre, but it's definitely like the tradition of folk music at its heart. And um, an example of subtlety, there are a couple of spots that I think of. Um, one is just these projects where you've been doing orchestral albums. Just the subtlety of having the title word in all caps and the way that kind of comes across, just like calm. And I just like, <laughs> just <laughs> immediately drawn to like, this is like a subtle marker of like, hey, you might need this over here, you know, and it's, mm. it's the clear communication of saying, saying what it is and helping people to find that because there's so much noise to find on a digital streaming platform. And you're like, okay, pay attention to this, but it's so it's subtle, it's intentional, and it's very sincere. And I think because of that, it's just like the magic bullet. I mean, it just goes straight to your heart because you're able to hear all mm. those things in it. Um, what was behind the I Dream of You albums? There is an original album called I Dream of You, and it was an album full of original lullabies that we wrote for our kids when they were small. And it kind of came out of this time where we had been pitching songs for radio every month, paying a radio promoter, to lobby these songs, try to convince radio stations to play and just like throwing so much money at it because we had had some success on the radio and it's kind of a long story, but one of my songs ended up on the radio because a girl used it to audition for the show. So you think you can dance. And one thing led to another, oh, wow. ended up on the radio, yeah. on the billboard charts, like crazy, like career altering circumstance. Mm -hmm. And then we pitched another song after that the next year. That song was even bigger. And so we had this kind of false confidence <laughs> about like, oh, it's easy. And then we spent the next few years pitching songs that just kept getting rejected. And we both were kind of growing this bitterness in our hearts. Like, what's wrong with our songs? What's wrong with these people? Like saying no, like all of these mm -hmm. gatekeepers just getting so angry and then listening to Christian radio and saying, I don't like this song. How is this song better than my song? And mm -hmm. it was just not a great headspace at all because we were defining success by having a song on the radio. And we had a talk with a friend of ours and he said, what if you used a different metric for success? And that was really life-changing mm -hmm. for us. And we went home and we talked about it and we decided that success for us and our music was if we hear stories from people on a regular basis, how God is using our songs to bring comfort or healing or joy, then it's working. Then that's all we need. I just mm -hmm. decided I'm going to step away from this. And I'm just going to write songs for my kids. Like this will probably not be a big mm -hmm. success, but it feels like the right thing in this moment for my heart. So we made this album and it did fine. And it felt like it was the right thing to do. And it um, came out well, when we were still selling CDs. Yeah. So it was like the measurement that we were using was how many CDs we sold as streaming was growing it was like in its kind of infancy at that time out of all of the recordings that we had made this lullaby record was starting to kind of become the most listened to 
album in JJ's catalog. That was 2014 when that record first came out. Four years later, we had made a Christmas album that was orchestral and it had um, children's choir and like just sounded like a record that you could play for the next 20 years and would always sound like a Christmas record. Mm -hmm. After that album came out, we were like, that was really fun, but you can only play it for one month a year. So what if we made another album that was like all of these songs that people already loved that sounded like a Christmas record, but people could play it all year long. And that became what is now I Dream of You Calm. So there's I Dream of You Calm and I Dream of You Sleep and I Dream of You Love. Joy. Joy, yeah. Christmas. This year, we're actually releasing two that we worked on last year. And so that's Friendship. So there's a whole album of Friendship songs that are coming out this year. Mm -hmm. And then we also just announced I Dream of You Hymns. Those are starting to unroll this year and that record will release next year. But it's it's been amazing because we just get to work with people who are way more talented than we are and JJ gets to sing on it and it's everybody's <laughs> favorite songs. And so it kind of feels like using a cheat code or something yeah. like that. I, I The way that I describe it is it really feels like... I'm going to some gala wearing like a couture gown that somebody else made, but then I get all the compliments. <laughs> it doesn't feel fair, but I'm very grateful. Gosh, I love that you have done both original songwriting and covers in a way wearing wearing something that someone else made. And I think the mix of that, it feels like it's pretty seamless when I listen to it. I mean, I could hear the the Dylan cover, to make you feel my love right alongside I believe in you. And there's just like, they're just seamless. They're just both kind of coming to us from the same place and from the same voice and you can trust it. It's good. There's some lines in that. I mean, just the way you deliver the lines, especially there's that a couple of times when you sing that phrase, the hero you are. I mean, it just gets me. It's so good. I got to sing on a cover of your song with Seth Talley, and I was singing background vocals oh, with yeah. him on singing I Believe in You. And it was that song just translates. So other people are wearing your dresses too, mm. just so you know. Oh. Um, we wrote that song with Seth because his wife had just discovered that she had major hearing oh, loss. Oh, okay. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize you all wrote that together at that time. Yeah we wrote this song for people dealing with chronic illness. You know, there's lyrics like, uh, you work twice as hard to get half as far and just kind of describing mm -hmm. how much work it is for mm -hmm. people in this circumstance just to hit baseline. The effort is so much because it came out of such a true place in Seth's life. That song goes out. And, and reaches people in a really special way. Yeah, for sure. It comes through. And I, I think as you've described different parts of the struggle in your work over the years, those are the places where it really shines. And I, as I look back on that in my own life, it does seem like the places where the old illustration of the metamorphosis, I mean, the butterfly having to kind of really push through the stage of development to, to get to the flight, you know, to get to... 
the wings to be outstretched. And so many times we're frustrated in the moment and we're like shaking our fists, like, why is, why is it this way? And then on the other side, you kind of realize something is born that could not have been born if it had just been handed to you finished in the same way, you know? If you ever start doubting When it's hard to keep hoping I just want you to know that I believe in I believe in you When you're tired of fighting And it feels like you're broken I just want you to know that I believe in I believe in you Running a race with no finish line I mean, there are so many circumstances that, that that has been true in my life and in my career. Like one with struggle with extreme anxiety about 20 years ago, mm. just in the moment of the struggle of having multiple panic attacks a day, just asking God, like, why are you allowing this in my life? And then like that song that ended up on the radio came out of that time and wouldn't exist without my anxiety. And all of these lullabies, all of these records that we've made to bring a sense of peace, those wouldn't exist without my anxiety mm -hmm. because I make the music that my own soul needs to hear. And then the other mm -hmm. thing is um, I have a polyp on one of my vocal cords. And so like I physically cannot sing loudly. So I have to sing quietly. And at first I was so frustrated mm -hmm. by that. And then I realized I think my voice sounds better when I sing quietly anyway. And so it was just kind of mm -hmm. this thing that I didn't choose that forced me on the path that led me to where I am right now. Even though a lot of your work is not happening like in front of an audience in a live room, it is happening in a very collaborative way with, with listeners. And the theme of collaboration seems to be a big one for you, even as you work through some of these places of difficulty and bringing weakness into strength. Big time. I mean, I think, you know, going back to the headspace of an artist early on, the am I impressive kind of idea, I think there's also this kind of complimentary thought that's basically saying like, I can do this on my own. And that's what makes yeah. me impressive. And the more we've been making music, the more we realize that the collaboration with people who are better songwriters than you, better players than you, better singers than you, all of that stuff leads your work to be elevated rather than trying to sort of come up with the uh, like genius song all on our own. We invite other great craftsmen mm -hmm. to help us make the best thing that all of us can make together. And it's generally much more than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've loved getting to write with you guys, both on the side and then also with the Faithful Project. At one co-write that I enjoyed so much was JJ when we wrote with Patsy Claremont and that just it was just really fun to write with her with all of her life experience and storytelling and wrote this song that's kind of like an old 
pub song hymn, I guess you would say, because <laughs> you're kind of like, I mean, in the best way, talking about Jesus being the king and that's called Wondrous Things. I think I have somewhere, maybe I could find it. We have like a, a work tape of when we sang it together with the group for the first time, because you hear what you're describing there, this whole thing of like more because we come together to sing this than we could do if we were by ourselves. And that moment really reminds me of what you're describing is like mm. the spark of community and many voices doing a thing we couldn't do by ourselves excited about what you all are doing and just so grateful to get to connect and to hear more about your creative process. And yeah, it makes me want to do a lap around. I don't have a lake here, but just Shelby get out Park. and take a walk. Just go I think <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'm close to Shelby Park. So maybe I'll I get out there today and let some of these things sink in and just appreciate how thoughtful you are in your work. Thank you. Cheers, friends. Yeah. Thanks, Sandra. We did a little kind of an old-fashioned hymn. It's called Wondrous Things. Slow Work is a production of Christianity Today. Executive produced by Mike Cosper. Produced by Azure Phelps. Edited and mixed by Dan Phelps. Original music by Tyler Chester. Graphic design by Chris Bennett. And I'm your host, Sandra McCracken. Thanks again for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.